Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, convention campaigns. As liberals, we know what real change means. Because what this team knows is that finding real solutions means addressing the real challenges people face. And that's something that Aaron O'Toole's conservative party just can't quite grasp. Was the liberal convention that ended last night the start of the federal campaign that could come this spring, or will the pandemic mean it's not possible? Will the upcoming budget include national childcare and other campaign promises? The Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc, joins us on that today and on the death of Prince Philip, a man he knew well. And then, orange wave. I'm proud that our team has shown a real alternative to the Liberals who say one thing and do another, to the Conservatives who aren't connected to what people are going through. The NDP wrap up their convention later today. Can they rebuild lost support in the next election? What new promises will be on their platform? The NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us with the latest, plus vaccine passports. We would not like to see vaccination as as a uh, or uh, the, the vaccination passport as a requirement for entry or exit because we're not certain that at this stage that the vaccine prevents transmission. Why does the WHO oppose a global vaccine passport system? And should Canada be doing more to help other countries get vaccines right now? The special advisor to the Director General of the WHO, Dr. Peter Singer, joins us. Plus, the Scrum is going to dig into the pushback against COVID restrictions in Alberta. We've got the Calgary Mayor, Nad Nenshi, joining us. And pollster Nick Nanos gives us the latest standings as those convention campaigns kick off. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We begin today with the latest on the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. He passed away on Friday at the age of 99. The husband of Queen Elizabeth II for a remarkable 73 years, he was, in her words, her strength and stay. The UK is presently in an eight-day period of national mourning. Now, as consort to the Queen, Prince Philip had no constitutional role, but he was deeply involved in public service for decades. You think of the Duke of Edinburgh Award, and he visited Canada more than 70 times. Prime Minister Trudeau called him a man of great purpose and conviction. CTV News London correspondent Danielle Hamamjan is at Windsor Castle with the latest on the funeral details, especially in this time of the pandemic, Danielle. So given all the, the social distancing requirements, what are the arrangements? What are we going to see this week? Uh, well, Evan, it'll be a low-key affair, not only because of COVID, but because Prince Philip wanted it that way. He currently lies at rest in the private chapel behind me at Windsor Castle, but on Saturday, the day of the funeral, his coffin will be carried in a Land Rover, a custom-made Land Rover he himself helped design. He uh, was involved in the planning of his funeral in very meticulous details. Um, there will be a procession, a small one, uh, which will include Prince Charles, other members of the royal family. Along the way, there will be defense advisors from various Commonwealth countries, including Canada. Uh, and once inside St. George's Chapel, 
only 30 people will be allowed. The queen, their four children, their spouses, their grandchildren as well. Um, and we know now that Prince Harry will be among them. He'll be traveling from the United States without his wife, Meghan, who is six months pregnant and on the advice of her doctors will not be able to travel. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was supposed to attend, but he is giving up his seat for a member of the royal family. I want to touch quickly on the mood here. There's been this profound sadness, but also sense of patriotism, I have to say, Evan. A lot of people feel like this is some in some way the beginning of the end of an era, but certainly next Saturday they will be paying tribute to a man they feel was an inspiration to many for his life of service, for his military service, and of course serving the Queen and his family and indeed this country. Yeah, Danielle, I'm probably in solidarity with the Queen, who's lost, lost her uh, lifelong partner. Uh, Danielle Hamamdian will be watching as the yep. events unfold there. Thanks so much. Meanwhile, here in Canada, it's been a weekend of dueling political virtual conventions that are essentially thin fig leaves for the kickoff of some federal election campaign, maybe this spring or in the fall. The NDP will wrap up their convention later today. The Liberal convention ended last night with a sharply worded speech by Prime Minister Trudeau, much of it aimed at criticizing the Conservatives and praising his own government's response to the pandemic. It also gave strong hints that the federal budget of April 19th will pitch a post-pandemic world that includes national child care, maybe even national pharmacare and other programs. But at what cost? And with the third wave of COVID raging, millions of people are living under severe restrictions right now. Is this the time to consider a federal election? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc. Good to have you back on the program. Let me just start with, a, a, if I may, a policy issue because, uh, and we'll get to the politics in a minute, because the Finance Minister, Christopher Freeland, dropped strong hints that there is going to be a national child care program, saying the pandemic's a window of political opportunity. And she said there's been something of an epiphany. But your government hasn't done national child care program like this in six years in government. In fact, your government picked a totally different lane and you, you went ahead with the tax-free child benefit program. Uh, so why now national childcare? Why switch lanes? Well, Evan, I think the Liberal Party has for many years spoken about, thought about, uh, discussed with provinces and territories how we can get to a much better system of early learning and childcare, much more accessible, high-quality system across the country. The pandemic and some of the lockdown measures and other public health measures really laid bare the need for parents to have high quality, accessible childcare uh, as a part of, of being able to participate in the labor force. It's, it's one social policy that has huge economic growth potential. Look at the economy of Quebec. Uh, that's an example for the rest of the country in terms of access to early learning and childcare. So it's something we've talked about. I was a young MP in caucus when Ken Dryden uh, negotiated with all the provinces an agreement that Mr. Harper subsequently canceled. But I think the public and provincial governments, including conservative provincial governments, are talking to us about how we can collaborate uh, on something as important as that. Well, it is their jurisdiction, but I'm just trying to figure out you know, again, five years ago, at a cost of what is now about $24 billion a year, you got the child Canada, the Canada Child Benefit. That was the alternative to national child care. So you're saying now, this is the hint, that your government's going to do both. Continue the Canada Child Benefit, which was your child care plan originally, at $24 billion a year, and then add something like the Quebec program. What, what's the cost of all this? 
heaven forfend Evan that I would disagree with the premise of your question, but I don't think we've ever said that the Canada Child Benefit, which helped middle-class families with the high cost of, of raising children, was a substitute for an early learning and child care program. Obviously, one of the challenges around child care is creating the spaces that families need. Provinces, as you said, have a role uh, to play in doing that. But I think we've always thought, I've always thought that uh, having the two go hand in hand would be ideal, not only for Canadian families, but for the economy. And as I said, provinces are, are interested in working with us. It is, as you said, properly their jurisdiction. But the government of Canada wants to spend some money in collaboration with provinces uh, to increase the availability of high quality spaces. That's good for families, but it's also a key part of the economic growth the country will need. Okay, so, so, so there's child care, national child care, so we're looking for that in the budget. The other thing that showed up at the convention, potentially, was national pharmacare. That's got political significance because the NDP has demanded a national pharmacare in order to uh, support the budget. Is that in the cars now? Did the convention come to a consensus on national pharmacare? Something your government studied but still hasn't done. Again, the budget is uh, is eight days uh, eight days from now. We'll see ultimately what what is in the budget. But when we commissioned, for example, Dr. Hoskins' report on uh, on pharmacare, we have uh, the health committee has studied the health committee, the House of Commons has studied this. My caucus colleagues, Evan, uh, speak off often about some of the regional inequities around the country in terms of provincial drug plans, the high cost of drugs. Uh, I think has shown provinces and Canadians that if we have sort of a central purchasing power as the government of Canada taking responsibility to procure uh, some some high cost rare drugs uh, for the whole country that may offer an advantage to provinces. So this is an ongoing conversation. But again, premiers, Dr. Andrew Fury was reelected with a majority government in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, called me the weekend he was reelected to say he wants to partner with us on national farm. Okay, but I mean, uh, eventually, you know, we got three hundred and what eighty-five billion dollars in deficit, a hundred billion dollars more. You guys are planning to spend, even though, by the way, the economy just reported three hundred thousand new jobs and unemployment's falling. So you you, you wonder if you want to keep spending all that money. But but let me just for time purposes, we're in the midst of the pandemic, and 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 it looks like politicians are ready to have an election. First of all, uh, are you concerned that the provinces are not rolling out the, the vaccines fast enough? Ten and a half million vaccines are in the country right now. Millions are still not in people's arms. What, the, the math doesn't add up to me. What's going on here? So, so uh, Evan, just as, as we've said always, we're not seeking an election. We're not looking for an election. Uh, you sound all, like, to be fair, on... you, to be fair, you sound like you're seeking it, you're, you're spending and you're basically campaigning at the convention. It's hard to believe but that's Evan, the fig leaf. Evan, at one point, parties have conventions according to their constitution. We had a virtual convention and when 5,000 liberals get together, people shouldn't be shocked. It's a partisan discussion. But our government is focused clearly on the vaccines. And on that specific issue, uh, we're very confident that provinces and territories will have an effective, safe, rollout of the vaccines. Some of the numbers that you see are a result of lagging information in terms of reporting how many vaccines have actually been administered. So everything General Fortin, the public health agency, tells us is the provinces and territories will have uh, an effective vaccine rollout. Many but, more but millions of but vaccines they, are coming. 
but they didn't ask. It's interesting on the call with you, which you were on with the prime minister and the premiers, that 29th call. No province asked for federal help on the vaccine rollout, which is kind of odd because it's, there's millions of vaccines that, that haven't been there. there. There's hesitancy issues. There's barriers issues. Uh, why aren't the provinces seeking help? And is the federal government ready to help if they need it? The federal government is always ready to help uh, in all of those issues. We've said that since the beginning of the pandemic. I think we've shown that in a number of areas. The provinces tell us they have uh, effective vaccine uh, rollout plans in place. They're ramping up by the hundreds of thousands each week, the number uh, of, their, uh, of their citizens that can get immunized. I spoke, for example, with Premier Ford uh, late last week. Uh, so we're very confident that the provinces and territories that have the responsibility uh, for the delivery of, of health care, including vaccines, will be able to effectively deliver the millions of vaccines right. the government of Canada has procured and will be arriving in the coming weeks. All right, I, I got to leave it there. I just want to also give you my condolences and all of our condolences on the loss of Prince Philip, someone your father knew well and somebody you knew well. I know you grew up uh, knowing him and uh, condolences on the loss of, of someone that you probably knew your entire life. Minister LeBlanc, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Evan. All right, coming up on the program, Singh's moment. The NDP uh, will finish their convention today despite technical glitches. They're no longer broke. They've started running campaign ads last night, but can they actually convert enthusiasm into seats or have the Liberals move to the left, drain the orange wave? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. The NDP's convention wraps up today, and after debates about everything from abolishing the military, taxing billionaires, anti-Semitism, the party says no, they're unified, they're flush with cash, and they're ready for a federal election whenever it comes. In fact, the party says they have a budget of $24 million compared to just $11 million that they had for the election in 2019. But since the orange wave under Jack Layton, the party has steadily drained support, losing seats in every election since and going from 59 seats in Quebec to one. So what is their path back to growth? What ideas do they have to get there? Let's find out. Joining me now is the uh, leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, who will speak just a little later this afternoon. Uh, Mr. Singh, let's start ab about the convention. Your party... Look, this is a convention about policy, but we, we could be in a federal election at any moment. Are you expecting a federal election? And what is your metric of success? How many seats are you targeting in this election? Well, first off, I want to say that I don't believe it's the right thing to do to go to an election, given the, the variant and the spread of COVID-19 and how people are being impacted. We've got lockdowns in Ontario, cases rising in Quebec and BC, and these are the three largest provinces. So I want to reiterate, it's the wrong thing to do to go to an election but we will be ready. Saturday night, your party ran expensive campaign ads on Hockey Night in Canada, so you're clearly uh, ready for something. Um, but you say you don't want an election. Are you going to vote for this, the, the budget, which is April 19th? This is going to be a confidence motion. No matter what's in it, if there's no national pharmacare or if there is childcare but you don't like it, to avoid an election, are you going to vote for that no matter what, as you've said before? Well, I'm going to clarify a couple of things. First off, if the Liberals don't deliver on the promises they made to Canadians, they're breaking their promise to Canadians. They promised universal pharmacare. If they break that, they're breaking that promise to Canadians, showing again that they'd rather protect the profits of pharmaceutical companies than help people afford the medication they need. If they break their promise in childcare, they've been making this promise for decades now. 
if they break it, they're going to say clearly that they're not interested in actually backing up their words around being feminist, in actually giving a program that's going to help women get back to work. So they're going to have to answer to Canadians on those points. But we've said very clearly, there's things that we want to see in, in the budget. We want to see more help for people. We want to see a priority on getting everyone vaccinated. We want to see profit out of long-term care. We want to see the things you mentioned that they promised to deliver. But, if they but don't, if they do don't it, deliver, answer to Canadians. But I'm just, I, I, okay, but my question is, if they don't deliver, are you going to support what you are now calling, quote, broken promises? Because it sounds like you're giving up any leverage you have to get more from the Liberals. If you're saying, look, you figure out if, if the electorate likes it, I'm going to support you to avoid an election. Is that, is that politically savvy to give up your leverage? Well, the reality is the Liberals won an election, so there's not really much leverage if they won an election anyways. Well, there's uh, a vote for the budget. For there's a vote for the budget. We are That's fighting. Critical. We're fighting to get the help that people need, and we've used our position in Parliament to fight to get that help. Any law that needs to be passed has to be passed with support of a party. We will use our position to fight for more help for Canadians, as we have done throughout the pandemic. Every step of the way, when the Liberals wanted to put legislation forward, we said no, unless it's going to help people more, and we were able to get that help. Uh, the victories that we gained, paid sick leave, doubling CERB, getting more wage subsidy, that was all achieved outside of budgets. It was achieved when each legislation was brought forward. So we will use our position to fight right. for people as we have, but we're not going to give the Liberals an excuse to go to an election. That and would I, be the wrong thing to do. And I get your strategy. You're saying, you know, we've already won things like, uh, you know, paid sick leave um, and um, doubling of the CERB. But, you know, the Conservatives are also saying, oh, we also uh, topped up the salary from 10 percent to 75. We also fought for those things. We're also taking credit for that. In the end, do you think the Liberals care? I, I'm just wondering if, you know, the old style of political kleptomania, everyone steals the other person's best idea, and if people like it, they take credit for it. The Liberals move left, they steal your ideas, they get voted in, you're left out in the cold. Well, the difference is, is we were the ones that fought for these things. The Conservatives could say what they want, but they weren't there fighting for these things. We fought to make these things happen. We negotiated, we pushed, and we fought tooth and nail to get the victories for Canadians. And Canadians know that we were there for them and on their side. And I will continue to let people know. I don't take their support for granted. I'm going to continue to fight every single day to help people in their time of need and ask Canadians to consider who do you want on your side in Ottawa fighting for you when times are tough. Okay, let's talk about, um, you are pushing on the vaccine, on the pandemic. In this last week, you were pushing the federal government not just to procure vaccines, but to go help administer vaccines. You and I have spoken about this. This is clearly uh, provincial jurisdiction. You have said Justin Trudeau is using the word jurisdiction as an excuse. But you and I both know jurisdiction is not an excuse. It's the Constitution. Practically, what do you actually think the federal government can do to help the vaccine rollout? Well, let me give you an example. If we took the approach of Justin Trudeau that the Constitution means you can't do anything that's in the provincial jurisdiction, we would not have universal health care. We would simply not. It happened at the federal level with federal leadership, and it was brought forward at that level, and now it is a part of what we have in our country. So it takes federal leadership to get things done. And that means, we, of course, we respect the Constitution. That's basic, and that's obvious. Of course, we're in a federal government. We're going to have to work with provinces and territories. But that shouldn't be an excuse. That is just a reality. And we I, work but I'm just trying to be practical. To like, get things done. I, again, the, the federal government's got $19 billion in a safe restart program. They've got a rapid response program that they've said the premiers can request help if they want it. The prime minister spoke to the premiers 29 times on the 29th call. Not a single premier 
requested help on the vaccination rollout, as they had requested, by the way, for long-term care home, homes, and then the federal government sent in both the Red Cross and the military. If the provinces don't request it, though, and the money's there, what else can the federal government practically do? Well, we're in a pandemic and we're in a crisis. To me, leadership isn't saying, oh, I tried, and then you throw up your hands. To me, leadership is putting everything possible on the table, coming up with a plan, saying I'm, I will release the military to set up parallel vaccination centers and have those up and running immediately. That is, that is finding solutions. Right. Leadership is not finding excuses or finding what's the minimum I can do to get by. Leadership to me is saying, well, we're in a, we're in a pandemic, in a crisis, vaccination rates are so low, families are worried about their loved ones, they're worried about people getting vaccines quick enough. The poorest communities in our in our country are getting low rates of vaccination. It is not good enough to just say, I called them and said, hey, do you need help? Real leadership is persistent, pushing right. to get real I, I help, to, to get vaccines into people's arms. All right, well, we'll be watching your speech at the convention uh, later today, and everybody's on election footing, clearly. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, that's Jagmeet Singh. Coming up on the program, though, why does the World Health Organization oppose vaccine passports? Should Canada be doing more to help low- and middle-income countries get vaccinated? The special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Peter Singer, joins us next with new details. Stay right here with Question Period. Equitably sharing of rapid tests, therapeutics, oxygen and vaccines are key to ending the acute phase of the pandemic. That means tech transfer, sharing know-how and waiving intellectual property rights. The surge of COVID variants across the country, the Brazilian, the South African and the UK strain serve as a constant reminder that this is a global pandemic and much of the response has been coordinated by the World Health Organization an organization that has been widely criticized in the early days of the pandemic for relying on false information from China. Now a report on the origins of the COVID virus has drawn criticism from a number of countries, Canada included. But now the turn is to the race to vaccinate people all over the world. And again, the WHO is at the center. Should drug companies do more to get vaccines to all countries around the world? Are the variants here to stay? Does the world need a better early warning system in the future or vaccine passports? Let's find out. Joining me now is the special advisor to the director general of the WHO, Dr. Peter Singer. And as you can see by the order of Canada on his lapel, he is of course Canadian. Dr. Singer, great to have you on the program. How concerned is the WHO about the slow rollout of the vaccines that um, uh, not just in Canada, where it's been a big political and a health issue, but in low and middle income countries as the variants are gaining speed, danger uh, and traction. This is the number one issue, the number one concern of WHO, vaccine equity. About 700 million doses have been administered around the world, Evan, but in a very uneven way. The vaccination coverage in high income countries is about fivefold larger than in non-high income countries. And that's a very serious situation. It's uh, for ethical reasons, for economic reasons, in terms of restarting uh, the world economy, and I would say also for peace and security. And so the WHO is working hard on vaccine equity, including through a partnership called COVAX, which has distributed 38 million doses to 100 countries. Canada has contributed over $440 million to that. 
But Canada is the only G7 country to exercise their option to take doses from COVAX. We've got a million and a half doses of AstraZeneca from COVAX. Some have accused Canada, Canada's allowed to do it, it's part of the rules, but for violating the spirit of COVAX, which was really meant to help, as you said, vaccine equity in low and middle income countries. Was it right for Canada to exercise their option and take those doses? Canada is a top contributor to COVAX, both in terms of dollars and in terms of actual engagement and participation. And on balance, COVAX is the world's best distribution mechanism uh, for, uh, for fair distribution of vaccines. You know, when we talk about vaccine equity, three things can be scarce. Dollars, and we've got a $22 billion shortfall in uh, the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator, which COVAX is a part, that's not a lot of money compared to the tens of trillions of stimulus spending. Doses, 38 million doses distributed, and, and we've put out a call for countries to share doses so they can be equitably redistributed. And domestic manufacturing, that's really the midterm solution, Evan, because the choke point at the moment is supply. Better supply will mean more doses distributed, more vaccine equity, and helping the world get out of this uh, terrible situation as quickly as possible. Well, you mentioned domestic supply. Look, Canada has, doesn't have a domestic supply. That has been our choke point, and that has been a, a, a hugely controversial political issue here. But many countries around the world don't either. And in fact, at the World Trade Organization, there was a vote that over 90 countries voted for to actually have the big pharmacy companies who used public money to develop these vaccines to dr temporarily drop their patents so low and middle income countries could create generic versions of this and up their domestic supply. Canada refused, didn't want that vote to happen. They're trying to delay that vote, which has shocked a lot of people like Stephen Lewis. Should, in your view, Canada support this vote to make sure that the patents should be temporarily dropped so low and middle income countries can get into the domestic production of these vaccines. Canada should support domestic manufacturing at home and abroad. You know, there's a long history of this. Think about the Avro Aero, think about uh, Connaught Labs. And so it's, it, this is an issue in Canada, it's an issue around the world. WHO is pursuing four approaches um, on this. One is um, partnerships on fill and finish you know, the last stages to get the vaccine in bottles, et cetera. Secondly is the bi bilateral partnerships, like the Oxford-AstraZeneca uh, and Serum Institute. Thirdly, and this is probably a really key area, is coordinated technology transfer. And then finally, intellectual property. And WHO has supported uh, India and South Africa's um, uh, move at the World Trade Organization to temporarily suspend intellectual property rights. I think Canada should and will hopefully support uh, domestic manufacturing at home and abroad because that's how to up the supply. That's how to, countries can be self-reliant. That's how to achieve vaccine equity. And that's how to end this pandemic and help us uh, prevent and, and respond to future ones, and they will come. Dr. Singer, vaccine passports become a big issue as more people are getting vaccinated. There's a real debate around the world. Will you need a vaccine passport to travel? There's a lot of controversy about these. What is the WO's position, WHO's position on the vaccine passport? In January, the committee that advises WHO under the international health regulations um, did not support vaccine passports uh, for two reasons. One is the evidence at that time was clear that vaccines prevent 
death and bad outcomes, uh, but it was evolving in terms of whether uh, vaccines prevent transmission. That evidence has evolved since January. Secondly, um, there's a real risk of inequity, of making inequity worse, both internationally in terms of international travel and domestically in relation to vaccine passports. And we want to actually reduce inequities, not increase them. Having said that, that same committee is meeting again in April. We'll reconsider the evidence and uh, potentially reconsider its position. The WHO has been heavily criticized because it relies on information from contributing countries like China. That becomes political. There's lots of accusations that China lied about this. They kept doctors out. They kept the world away from Wuhan originally. And when countries like Canada are accepting information from the WHO, it, if that in information ain't any good, as you know, that means there's a slow response, that means borders aren't closed and people's lives are lost. What needs to change? WHO's only had one consideration, Evan, since it first heard of this uh, response, and that's saving lives. And uh, it saved a lot of lives. The world would be a lot worse off without it. Every country, every organization can learn. And uh, there's an independent panel, for example, that's looking at WHO will learn, but also the national responses. You know, there's a 50-fold difference in cumulative mortality across even G20 countries. So we all have a lot to learn. And then thirdly, you know, um, it's countries, it's governments that design the system, because governments are WHO as well as the Secretariat. And there is an attempt to do a pandemic treaty to translate some of those lessons learned into preventing uh, future future responses. Dr. Singer, I appreciate your work and thanks for taking time to speak to us again. I always appreciate it. It's great to be with you again, Evan. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, rolling restrictions. Are tougher restrictions needed across this country or will there be a popular pushback as has happened with some politicians in Alberta? Are the provinces holding back vaccines or is the federal government just inconsistent in the rollout? We'll talk about that on the Scrum next and our special guest is the Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi. Stay right here with Question Period. Folks, we are at towards the end of this thing. We just have to get through the next few weeks. I completely understand the frustration, the anxiety, and the impatience. We all share it. Nobody likes these restrictions, me least of all. We all acknowledge that the restrictions have had a very real cost for many people. So with the third wave crashing down across Canada, the rolling restrictions are getting tighter everywhere. Ontario is under that stay-at-home order. Quebec just cranked up its new limits, lowered curfews. BC is in the circuit breaker, but battling the deadly Brazilian variant of the virus. There's been open pushback, though, in Alberta. 16 MLAs from Premier Jason Kenney's own caucus wrote him a letter demanding that he loosen restrictions there, even as some doctors in that province are demanding tighter ones because of the rise of the variants. Has confusion and mixed messages over restrictions and vaccines led to a growing frustration across the country? And does the rollout strategy need to change more quickly? Has the federal government been too slow to procure vaccines or are the provinces too slow to roll them out? Let's dig into all this with the Scrum. Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, joins us. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter with the Canadian Press. And our special guest this round is Calgary Mayor who's not going to be running again, as he announced uh, last week. And now Nenshi joins us. Great to have everybody here on a uh, convention Sunday. Uh, Mayor Nenshi, um, let me just start with you on the situation in Alberta. 
it, you know, you get these 16 MLAs who are openly revolting against the Premier. By the way, I've never seen that before. Has this highlighted the debate around the need to for, on restrictions, but also on the mixed messages about how to explain the need for this for people? What does it tell you? Well, you know, let me start uh, by being a bit snippy about it, which is I love politics and I love political speculation. And at this juncture, I could not care less about the politics. Yes, it may have some impact on someone's political future at an election two years from now, but we're in a crisis and we got to save lives. And, you know, sadly, in the last 11 years, I've gone through a lot of crises. And one of the things that I know during a crisis is you've got to be clear, you've got to make decisions quickly, and you have to never, never think about what's politically right. You just have to do the right thing. And uh, certainly, we are looking at restrictions. The numbers are unexpectedly bad. I think that's the critical thing. Yeah. The rise of the variants and the speed of the rise of the variants was not expected. So we've got to be nimble. And we've got to realize that our old plans don't work anymore. That's the definition right. of leading during a crisis. And just to communicate that very clearly. And if I've got a criticism of the premier, you know, he takes lots of walks in the fields before he gets to his point, even more than I do, which is sometimes shocking. But, um, you know, it's very clear. He keeps saying, I don't like this, but I must do it. And at some point, you know, stop saying that. Just say you must do it. Mm. And remember that 80% of people in Alberta still think that our restrictions are good enough or need to be stronger. And yet he seems to be talking to the 20% that want them to be weaker, who are not complying today. They're not going to comply today. They're not going to comply later. Move on. Yeah, I will say this, George. I got to push back a little bit what Mayor Nenshi just said, uh, because in many places there were warnings about the variants. You think about Ontario. A month ago there was press conference with Dr. Steiny Brown. He said, yeah, this is a disaster in the making from the variants. Restrictions were loosened. Now here we are. There's this whole sense that there's a disconnect between the messages and the confusion. It, it, what we're seeing in Alberta, is that part of the crisis of trust that you and I have been speaking about over the last month? Absolutely. I mean, this is politics versus science. Um, and in a, in a certain way, Evan, I think it's happening across the country. In a less crass and obvious way, in Quebec, in Ontario, we lift restrictions, we go back to restrictions, open, close, open, close. And what, what happens? We open when, oh, cases go down. We know that when we open, the cases will go back up. Now we have the variants. I mean, science is telling us clearly what to do. It's hard, obviously, for politicians. I understand that this is a moving object, and it moves very fast, and sometimes it moves in one day. Add to that the confusion of 12 healthcare systems. Within those 12 healthcare systems, we have health districts. We have 34 of them in Ontario. Then we have the federal government. Then we have the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. We have so many voices mm. that it has become a little bit of a cacophony. It's so confusing that really what you need is, again, one hymn book, one, one level of government telling right. this is one country. We know when we close here, cases go down. We cannot start opening. There are variants. People are dying. ICUs are full. Hello? What part of this do you not understand? Yeah. Uh, okay, Steph, on, there's that. Then there's also this blame game that's playing out. Provinces are saying, you know, we could vaccinate more if we had more supply. The federal government's saying, wait, we gave you 10.5 million. You're expecting six. Uh, and they're pointing the finger supply versus administration. Um, I don't know if people care. They just want the vaccine. But just calibrate that. Who's right here? How do you cut through the spin on all this? 
both things are happening at the same time, right, Evan? I mean, vaccines are not coming into the country as fast as anyone would like, but the reality is the pace has, has picked up markedly since the start of the year. The vaccination rate is increasing. You know, I drive past vaccination sites here in Ottawa. There are lines around the block. It's getting done. But these variants are increasing at a speed that outpaces the vaccine. And the political blame game, where it's awfully convenient for premiers to blame the federal government for vaccines not coming fast enough while the virus still spreads, and that is something they can control through shutdown. I mean, I think that's, it's almost some kind of political malpractice. Focus on the things, mm -hmm. premiers, that you can control. And to the politicians who are willing to say, we don't want restrictions. I mean, great. So then what's your next idea? How would you like the ICU beds to stop filling up? How would you like to keep the schools open so that kids can go? How would you like to protect the people who are working in factories who have no choice but to go to work? How about that paid sick leave that you might be able to provide so that they'll help them stay home? How about instead of opposing the restrictions while at the same time people are dying and ending up in the ICU, you come forward with some other great ideas to help save people's lives. And as the mayor said, stop turning it into a political game. These are people's lives we're talking about. Okay, Mayor, I know you wanted to weigh in on that because what needs to change in terms of the strategy? I know some places are moving from the age-based rollout of the vaccine, you know, going from the eldest to the youngest. That worked originally with the, with the variants. There's a move to the exposure-based, you know, go to the hot zones, go to the essential workers. What needs to happen right now, Mayor? I think we need to really listen to the science and listen to the evidence. Uh, and to the point we were making, you know, I get... I get a daily update and one of the numbers on the daily update is the percentage of vaccines that we have in Alberta that have been administered. And that number usually was around 90%. It's now 65%. So we really have to be looking at that distribution question. Mm -hmm. Vaccination distribution is critical. We've opened, uh, the city has opened a max vax clinic uh, here in Calgary that will have the potential of doing 5,000 doses mm -hmm. a day. And we have been focused entirely on an age-based and chronic condition-based system. Right. I think now it is time to go to what you're calling an exposure-based system. Let's get the police officers and the firefighters and the grocery store clerks and the teachers vaccinated quickly. Here in my neighborhood where I live in Calgary at one time in November, we had a larger infection rate than any country in the world. So right. let's get everybody in my neighborhood done. And I think it's time to be flexible and creative and move quickly. All right, got to leave it there. Mayor Nenshi, thanks for joining us. Also, thanks to Steph Levitz. Joyce is going to stick around for the next round because when we come back, election-ready conventions. As the Liberals and the NDP wrap up their conventions this weekend, what signs are there of an early election? And what could you see as the next big program? Will it be national child care? We'll find out. The Scrum returns with CTV pollster Nick Nanos and Tonda McCharles. Stay right here with Question Period. The problem for Aaron O'Toole is that he's not interested in real solutions to real problems. In fact, he's already shown that he's willing to say different things to different people at different times if he thinks it'll help him get ahead. I think it is absolutely wrong to hold an election while we are fighting this pandemic. Right now, the priority of the, of the government, of the Liberal government, of Justin Trudeau, should be to get everyone vaccinated.
dueling virtual conventions at the time of the pandemic. The Liberals ended their convention last night. The NDP are set to wrap up theirs later today. Now, the Liberal convention was characterized by strong hints that a national child care program is coming in the April 19th budget, along with maybe national pharmacare. In other words, big spending that would require working with the provinces. The NDP convention, which keeps getting tripped up by loads of technical glitches, it kind of looks like my family Zoom calls sometimes, has been fraught with debate, everything from Israel and anti-Semitism to taxing the rich. But Mr. Singh is clearly targeting young voters. What do these conventions tell us about what we could see in an upcoming federal election? Let's bring back the scrum to find out. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. Joining us for this round is Tanya McCharles from the Toronto Star. And our special guest is the CTV pollster and the president and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. All right, Tonda and Nick, uh, welcome back with Joyce. Uh, Nick, let's just start with you. Um, and we'll start on the Liberal Convention. What were the strengths and weaknesses you saw over this past week and what that tells you about where they're heading? Well, the Liberals have about a 10-point advantage in our majority territory. It was a very disciplined convention, but it was, it was a broadside, a one-two punch on Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. Aaron O'Toole being framed as opportunistic, the Conservatives as being disconnected. And you know what? I guess the Conservatives are on the receiving end of this because in the past, they defined Michael Ignatiev and Stefan Dion to their detriment. And uh, so right now, the shoe's on the other foot, looks like. Oh, interesting. Joyce, uh, let's start with the Liberals. You watch that. What were they, sort of the standouts, the hits and misses, and, and what does it tell you? Well, I find it interesting. You said the NDP debate was fraught with, uh, you know, with, with uh, sort of opposition. And, and, and the Liberal one was the complete opposite. They agreed on everything. There was hardly any debate. It was a big love-in. Uh, look, these are marketing exercises. We know it's difficult. We're in a pandemic. It was all virtual. It's awkward. It's not good television. Sometimes it's even cringy. Uh, what I find interesting is throughout this, I'm listening and I'm here, ka-ching, ka-ching, spend, 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 more programs, more programs. That's fantastic childcare, but didn't they have the child benefit? Didn't the Liberals, you know, promise this in 2015? Now we have the child benefit, childcare, pharmacare, um, you know, universal basic income. Listen, uh, all this is fantastic. We wish we could afford it. Um, it's like, I wish I could afford a castle, but I can't. And we've got to be realistic. And I think they were out there in left field. Uh, okay, well, and then maybe there's political hay to be made in left field right now. We can talk about that when we get to the NDP convention. Uh, Tonda, what was your take on the hits and misses of that convention? Uh, well, look, I think the Liberal Convention showed that that organization is more election ready than any of the others. Um, they had all their ducks in a row in terms of uh, organization. Technical, technically, it came off smoothly, but also, or more or less smoothly, but also um, they had managed to vet and prioritize and marshal and funnel everything down so that when, when the actual discussions rolled out, Joyce is right, there was little debate. What I found about this convention is that it showed that the, the, the party grassroots are, yeah, they're further ahead than Trudeau is on a number of things. They want him to move faster on climate action. They want him to move faster on long-term care homes and a universal basic income. But it, it also showed there's not that much distance. And everybody, to a, a person, made hay of the fact that there was a lot of distance shown between the Conservative Party leadership and its base over the denial of the climate change is real motion. So look, that, that, showed, that showed an organization uh, priming and ready to go. Yeah, okay, so Nick, later today, Jagmeet Singh's gonna wrap up his convention. Uh, to talk about where the NDP is, I know speaking of the NDP, they're targeting a growth of at least 
10 seats. They're trying to target younger voters. Um, what do you, have you made of their convention? What does that tell you about uh, their possibilities in a potential election? Well, you know, the, the NDP right now are at 18% nationally. The interesting thing is for Canadians under 30 years of age, that jumps up to 25%. They just need to motivate those young Canadians and get them to go out and vote. Could have a materially positive impact on NDP fortunes. But the thing is, is that for a party that's focused on young people, to fail on the technology is not good. And it just shows that although they're not a government in waiting, they still have very progressive poli politics uh, policies like the $20 minimum wage and the billionaire uh, tax. But the thing is, uh, for the new Democrats, I don't think that's enough because the Liberals are very progressive. And, you know, for people that are into that kind of politics, they could vote for the Liberals and potentially be in government. Yeah, George, weigh in on that. I mean, the Liberals have practiced sort of political kleptomania on the NDP for years. Is that happening now? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they ate their breakfast. They're in the process of eating the NDP's lunch as well. Um, look, we, we hear Jagmeet Singh. I know what he's saying. He's saying, look, uh, we pushed the Liberals during this pandemic to give more, to do more. Wage subsidy is a perfect example. It was 10% at the beginning of the pandemic. It went up to over 80%. The NDP had pushed for that. Look, we know that we're in the bubble. Does the general public know that? Um, can you even distinguish the two? Uh, right now, uh, the, both parties are there. They're opening, you know, the, the coffers and, you know, they're shoveling. They want to shovel money up out the door. I'm going to repeat that. There is such a thing as a structural deficit. We have to pick and choose. Uh, Tonda, Jagmeet Singh was just on the show. He says he doesn't want an election. He may support the budget, but he's asking for even more. Uh, what do you make of how they're positioning themselves and what the convention tells you? Well, I think that they're trying to regain some territory from the Liberals, from uh, regain that broad swath of uh, left of center votes. The problem for Jagmeet Singh is that Trudeau is completely encroached on that territory. And, you know, I think the Liberals sense that Singh does have an appeal to younger voters, and younger voters are going to have a much bigger say next time around. Um, so, that's why I think you saw even Trudeau. I mean, he attacked the uh, con conservative leader O'Toole yesterday. Uh, however, he, you notice he didn't attack Singh. He didn't take on the NDP. He wants to bring those voters, those voters into his camp. So I think, you know, the strategies are clear um, and they're tried and tested, aren't they? The Liberals all, always campaign way on the left and then move. This government hasn't, they'll move so much to the right. They've stayed left of center throughout their mandate. And I think that you know, voting-wise, uh, as Nick's numbers show, that's serving them. Yeah, well, we'll find out uh, if all this leads to a spring campaign. I mean, the, the third wave is so real. Uh, you just yeah. wonder how that goes and, and how fast these vaccines get there. Obviously, that's going to be a critical factor. Okay, I got to leave it there this morning, but man, a campaign week and even a virtual one still pretty exciting, and we'll watch the NDPs later today. Uh, Nick, Joyce, and Tonda, great to have you on the program. Uh, that does it for Question Period this week. Thank you for watching and engaging in all this. I will see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern. Take good care of yourselves. I know it's a tough time. We will be back here in seven short days.